Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of regional LGBTIQA living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and we respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This project has been made possible with the financial assistance of Melbourne Pride and with the support of the Mount Alexander LGBTIQA steering group the Mount Alexander Shire Council, and Main FM 94.9. Hello, uh, my name's Ian Gould. Um, I was born in Melbourne in the early 1950s, so I'm a baby mover. I identify as gay, and I prefer the personal pronouns he and him. My childhood, I guess I was brought up in the leafy eastern suburbs of Melbourne. I used to spend a few weeks at, at the beach every summer holidays. I used to spend country holidays with, with relatives on the sheep and cattle properties. And I think that probably gave me my yearning to live in the country. I think of the memories as a childhood that, with hindsight, I think our Saturday dinners um, around the dining room table were memorable because we used to discuss all sorts of things, religion and its hypocrisy, Drugs, politics, you know, Vietnam War, conscription, all the sort of things that were important in our teen years. Um, I think our parents encouraged us, I have two brothers, um, to develop our own ideas and explain why we had our ideas and also for us to be tolerant of others and their ideas. I think our parents instilled in us to have a, a, a quiet self-confidence uh, and not a sort of tall poppy arrogance. I think also importantly, the normality of volunteering in community organisations. Our mother contributed to many other uh, community organisations, you know, paraplegics and quadriplegics, the Blind Institute, other groups, school groups. So that was just part of our, our life, I guess. In terms of gender equality, I was asked the question, were there any notable uh, role models? I guess after I left home, I then realised that uh, our parents, mother and father, she had a lot more domestic jobs than most people did. So Dad would often help Mum in the kitchen, especially when they had a dinner party or friends around for dinner, putting out washing on the line, doing various tasks around the house, which I always took for granted, but I found out later in life that wasn't, wasn't normal, wasn't usual. So I've got a strong memory about the illegality of homosexuality for, for gay men. I was at school probably about year 12. I'm not quite sure what the construct was. Um, but I guess I suspected I was gay or homosexual or whatever the construct was. And we'd been told at school that that was illegal. And I can remember standing on the steps um, on one of the outside landings, having this reflection about, well, if that's me and I've done nothing, how, how can I be illegal? It was quite a perplexing thing. I could actually take you back to that place today at school if I haven't knocked it down. So that thought was there for quite a long time. It was, back in, it was back in the 80s, I guess, the law changed. At that time, I was living at Werribee. I was working with the Department of Agriculture in Agricultural Engineering, 
and it was all a bit of an anticlimax. I was aware that the law had changed, but um, I guess I didn't in those days have a big network of gay friends. It wasn't something to celebrate um, because, again, gay life was very much secretive. One kept one's professional life very separate from your, your private life. Um, so it was quite the opposite of marriage equality, which was a very public event. I moved from Melbourne to the country when I was, was 19. I think, as I mentioned before, I used to visit countries' ship and cattle properties, and that's where I got my interest in agriculture. So I uh, left Melbourne and went to Dukey Agricultural College because um, I wanted an applied, uh, uh, an applied approach to agriculture. And perhaps ending up in property management was my thought of the day. Uh, that didn't happen for all sorts of reasons. And I guess in those days, again, homosexuality was firstly illegal, as this was back in the, in the early 1970s. Very closeted and all of very negative stereotypes. So uh, I guess in those days, if I uh, had any sense that I might have been gay, I just repressed it. I think like most people, about it was an all-male residential college institution. I just got on with life continued to be active in the school, in the college community, and made some lifelong friends. Now, some 50 years later, they know I'm gay, they know I'm gay is no problem, and that's part of the reflection, I guess, of what's changed over the last 40 to 50 years. After Dookie, I, I landed a job with the Department of Agriculture at Tatura and lived in Shepparton. And I guess as I was then in my early 20s, I was becoming more aware of my sexuality and realised that in those days, in the 1970s, one couldn't really be, be gay and out and live in rural communities. And also, professionally, my interests were moving into agricultural engineering. And I was given the, the opportunity to go back to university. Um, so I moved back to Melbourne, completed a degree in agricultural engineering, and then uh, continued living in Melbourne and working with the department. I think from those days, I've got this memory of um, having a network of straight friends through university. We went bushwalking, socialising, but realising I needed to develop a network of, of gay friends. And I've got this somewhat unusual construct in my mind that it was like being a trapeze artist, that I had to let go of my straight friends to make time and space to, uh, to meet gay people. And it was quite a scary time because I had to, to launch out and go to nightclubs and, and discos, which aren't always my cup of tea, um, and meet people. Uh, which was quite difficult to do, and try to develop new interests. And again, the gay community, stereotypically, doesn't have many people who are interested in bushwalking, overnight bushwalking, fixing cars, doing house renovations, those more uh, applied skills, which I had and still have. I guess it was about that time, the sort of late eight, mid-80s, that the HIV epidemic struck. And by that stage, I wanted to know, I had a science background, I wanted to know what the illness was about, what were things I could do to protect myself what the issues were through our society. So I went to a public meeting that was held at the dental school, which was just after the formation of the Victorian AIDS Council. And out of that, um, I volunteered for the AIDS Council, mainly in the, uh, in the safe sex education area. And uh, one of those anomalies of life is that the, the sort of principles and techniques you use to try and encourage men to have safe sex are exactly the same principles you use with farmers in agricultural extension to encourage them to adopt new technologies in farming, not in sex. So I could contribute some of my professional background there, which was interesting. I guess importantly, what I really found at VAC was that I started to meet people of my own tribe, people perhaps who wanted to make a difference, who had volunteer roles, 
who got out and did things, who didn't see their life revolving around the nightclubs and bars as a gay person, but whose gay life was uh, much broader than that. So my social networks today, you know, 40 years on, um, are still made up of those people. So I continued as a volunteer at the AIDS Council for some 10 or 12 years. I was involved, first involved in, in the Safe Sex Education Working Group and then the Organisational Services Working Group and ended up, and most of that time I was on the Board of Management of the AIDS Council and the Gay Men's Health Centre. So I think that was from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s, it might have been about 12 years. It was a difficult time. I, I'd rather not talk about that too much, it's difficult. Um, Anyway, along the way, I was, was kindly given the President's Award one year, and, and towards the end, I was made a, a life member. <laughs> Over my life, I volunteered in a range of organisations, including um, professional organisations. After the sort of roughly 12 years as a volunteer at VAC, I decided it was time to retire from that have a break for a while and then over the next decade or, or so I guess I've um, been volunteered with the Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby. I was uh, Deputy Chair of the Health Minister's Advisory Committee on Gay and Lesbian Health and Wellbeing. Um, I was part of the working group that established Pride Foundation Australia which I'm still a director of which is a volunteer-based LGBTI a philanthropic fund, a national fund. I've been on committees with the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria on assessing projects um, for the Hay Grants, good fortune of contributing to being an assessor of the LGBTI community grants and, and many other groups. And I guess out of all those, I've been very lucky. I've um, been made a, a life member of, of Midsummer Festival, which is fantastic. Um, life member of the AIDS Council. I, I guess what, what makes me, me proud looking back over the last 40 years is how our community has addressed all sorts of um, areas of discrimination and disadvantage through our communities. And through the community has formed a range of sporting groups, social groups, rights lobbies, health organisations, philanthropic funds, a whole myriad of groups that are, that are all working to fill the gap and I guess make make the world for us a much better place. And we continue to, to, to tease out those areas of disadvantage and discrimination, whether it be in LGBTI people who are refugees or asylum seekers or have disabilities or are homeless. There's all the whole range of niche areas which our health services in the community and our human rights need to be looked at through a somewhat different prism, through a rainbow, through a pride prism rather than a straight prism. And I think that our communities have been able to do that over the last 40 years is, is really very important. Sorry. <laughs> Again, Midsummer has been a very important part of building society, initially in Melbourne, but now, of course, statewide. And I think Midsummer Festival use those two things. Firstly, it, it it enhances the creative creativity of our community through the visual and performing arts, uh, and, and, and secondly, uses the visual and performing arts as a way of developing our society through again pressing back on disadvantage and discrimination and being a showcase for what our community can do. Just as other communities, whether they be uh, non-English speaking background communities or migrant and other, other communities do it in Australia, rural communities, 
regional communities all have their festivals and celebrations just as our community does. The normality that Midsummer makes of the LGBTI community is a bit of a contradiction, but I think that's what it achieves in many ways, that we're just an ordinary bunch of people doing things a bit differently. The first carnival was actually down at St Kilda. It was where the Pride March now assembles, and it was probably the second or third year of the festival. Most of my friends were on the board of Midsummer at the time. Anyway, the, the carnival was down at top end of Fitzroy Street, and it was a stinking hot day, 40-degree heat day. Everyone was very hot. And the cool change came across the bay, and Bjorn again with the last act, doing, doing a whole range of, of numbers, and the crowd just went hysterical. It was absolutely amazing. And the first Pride March was, again, down Fitzroy Street, but it actually turned left, went along the Upper Esplanade, and assembled in front of um, Luna Park. And on the, what do they call it, the, the roller coaster, this might have been a scenic ride, that the whole group had stopped and they were about to have the official presentations and talks. And some of the some drag queens were up on the roller coaster behind it and they'd reached the top and then squealed all the way down with all their, all their coats, all their, their coats trailing behind them at the most official part of the afternoon. It was hilarious. I've watched it once, but every over the year, I think I've been in every year pretty well since it started. Being in it's much more fun. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Same with, same with Mardi Gras. If you ever get to Sydney and go to Mardi Gras, be in a parade for there. It's a bit terrifying if he'll see you from work, but still. <laughs> <laughs> What was in those days anyway? It's not, mm-hmm. not an issue now, of course. I think it changed gradually. I think it changed for me being out of work, changed as a consequence of changes in society. Um, and I think also changes in my own self confidence. And probably a little bit by that stage, I was a bit more senior at, at work and um, I was on the management team. I was by then openly gay, and that brought a, a different perspective to things. I'd never been the direct butt of, of, of any name-calling or, or jokes. Probably when I was working in agricultural engineering, there was some unintended um, jokes said. I think sometimes you need to look and be aware of the intent of the joke rather than, than in absolute terms. If it's conveyed in a, a feeling of goodwill and spirit and, and humour, um, it may not be intended as an attack on you or me. And in those days, that was why I took it. Uh, because I knew the people I worked with them every day, I knew there was no malicious intent. They just didn't know and I wasn't confident enough to tell them. So it was a joke. Coming out of work, I think it was a gradual thing for me and I think a gradual thing in society. I think now, I'm sure in some professions it's still very difficult, especially some of the more traditional, we might call them, professions. Because it's about, I think coming out is about three or four things. It's about oneself as an individual having the self-confidence, being sure who you are, and what that means. I think we've got a bit more choices than I had. I think when I was younger, it was gay or straight. Now, you know, it's gay or bi or trans. It's, it's, there's more choices, if you like. I think there's more of information to help one make that decision about who you really are. When I came out, um, there, were, there were no role models. There were no high court judges. There were no politicians. There were no CEOs of ASX-listed companies. There were no local government members. Uh, no one at school, no one at work was out. Of course, now that's, that's quite different. And a lot of big organisations have pride support groups, which is great. Uh, and there's pride in diversity, a national, again, one of our community groups, a national organisation promoting the pride groups within large corporations and, and inclusion. So back to what I was saying. So, yeah, coming out was a gradual, a gradual process. 
Um, and um, I, again, I was lucky. I had no, no issues along the way. I think by the time I did it, we'd had enough law reform in place, again, which I, through the rights lobby, was a small contributor to. So there was legislation to protect. But I think that's a resort to using legislation and rules is one thing we sometimes have to do, but the preference would be to uh, be human, be people, talk to people, explain to them who you are. It's not always easy. <laughs> That's an issue which a lot of people don't understand. They think coming out's a once-in-a-life process. It is getting easier, especially when you're in a, in a different, different circumstances. So my partner and I... Um, we're, life has changed, so we, we've, we've got a four-wheel drive land cruiser with a slide-on camper on the back and we go to fairly remote areas. And we are up in Queensland um, a couple of years ago camping and this straight couple, older couple, came across and had a chat to us. And uh, the woman uh, talking said how pleased they were to be in Broken Hill last year and stumble across the Broken Hill Festival. <laughs> and had we been, did we want to go? <laughs> and, and funnily enough, we were actually going there that very year. Uh, because we hadn't been before. Um, so those sort of things were unimaginable a few years ago. But, yeah, coming out isn't every, every, every day. And I think now it's done almost by inference if you're there with your partner of the same gender, um, then it's, it's a bit more obvious. Um, so we bought a ride on mower the other week and both of us had a look at it and, and we're asking questions about it. Again, 30 years ago, that probably would have been a bit more difficult. Uh, yeah, I think the other thing is people in, in regional and regional or more remote Victoria have a, still have more difficulties than uh, in, in Melbourne. Though, again, I think there's pockets which have finding it more difficult than others. And, again, I think from my time on the Hay Grants Committee and the Victorian Government LGBTI Community Grants Committee, we're seeing some significant progress. There's a lot of, a lot of smaller groups are finding they've got allies with the local football team, local cricket team. Uh, those sorts of connections are being made, which is, which is really powerful. And the other hand, we're seeing often in, in Melbourne, sometimes with the uh, more recent arrivals into Australia that bring a culture and religion with them that um, perhaps hasn't caught up with the modern reality of life, the, the biology of homosexuality, issues around gender identity and sexuality. Most religions have, of course, but, but some religions and some branches of religions are, are a bit slow at doing that. So coming to Australia is a, a big change for them. Um, we saw it with you know, Greek and Italian immigrants. We're seeing it now often with Middle Eastern and uh, other immigrants. And again, there are branches of the Christian, of Christian faith that still uh, don't accept the reality that diverse sexuality and gender identity is part of uh, part of evolution, part of who we are, and a part of any, any divine being that would have created if, it's, if such a divine being exists. I'm not so sure about that yet. yet. I'd, I'd actually chosen to work part-time. Before I retired, I decided that it was a nice idea to, to scale down my work for retirement, work, work part-time, and then retire. Um, and, and little did I realise until when I started that, I then realised that all you did was work with full-time jobs spread through longer hours over three days a week and get paid into three-fifths three of the money. So that was a pretty silly idea. But anyway, um, it did give me time. I did some volunteer work with the Reichstein Foundation which is a very progressive philanthropic fund. And uh, I did some work in those days to try and establish an LGBTI giving circle 
um, through the Reichstein Foundation. That was about the time the economic crisis hit. Um, so it was a very bad time to ask people to donate money. The good thing that came out of that was that we then, in time, we then established Pride Foundation Australia, which I've mentioned before. Through Reichstein, they were funding a number of LGBTI um, projects in, in regional Victoria. And because of my own experiences, uh, I donated to some of those projects, and one of them was the Cobalt Project. So when uh, the work that Sue was doing with people uh, at Cobalt um, they planned to go down to Phillip Island to have a, a, a weekend camp away, a bit of a retreat to talk about issues, about what it's like to be gay and coming out. And when they went to make the final booking for the camp, they, the owners of the camp asked what the purpose of the camp was. And when Sue explained that it was for LGBTI young people, the proprietors decided to refuse them the booking. And that, of course, was discrimination. It was a, it was a business. Uh, and over the course of time, it was taken to VCAT, and uh, we won, essentially. It was a very traumatic and difficult time for Sue and, and the, the young people involved who pursued it right through to the end. So it was quite a high-profile high case, and I sat through probably two-thirds of the hearing. Again, I was working part-time at the time, so I'd go into the, to VCAT and sit in the back row um, and listen. Uh, the other really important thing about it, for my line, was that the... Um, the Board of Cobalt Community Health supported this all the way through without question. Just like in marriage equality, the, the um, uh, Country Women's Association, of course, Country Women's Association supported marriage equality. So it's very wrong to look at regional and rural Australia and see it as being full of homophobes. It's not the case at all. And I think we see the community is supportive as we do everywhere else. My father passed away of a heart attack suddenly. Um, so I suspected, I think by, those, by that stage he probably suspected but didn't say anything. Um, and then came out to my mother much later in life. Um, as it happens, my younger brother's also gay. Um, and um, we sort of came out of it essentially together. If one did it, the other one had to. Um, so uh, the straight, father, straight brother in our family is black sheep. And I guess I'm, I'm out now to all, all, all the family. So again, those cousins in the country who um, I still, I still go visit those properties and stay with them. They all know now. Again, that was a pretty traumatic process, as it, as it always is. And as I think always that the fear of rejection is always a very powerful one. Um, and I think that's one that probably should be talked about a bit more. I think that's an almost paralysing fear for, for me anyway has been over the years, um, and it's probably shaped who I am in other, other ways of my character as well. And I think it's the fear that's far greater than the reality. I think if the reality hits, you fight back. If the fear isn't there, it's almost justification to still be fearful. Because you never know. As I said, I always, when I left home, I always thought I'd live in the country and then came back to Melbourne because of my sexuality. And then my career took off and um, it was Melbourne-based, essentially. I used to travel through regional Victoria quite a lot. Um, and I always wanted to move back to, to the country, but the opportunity didn't arise. And then when I retired, um, I found um, that barrier wasn't there. 
Graham and I were sort of looking at perhaps moving out of Melbourne. I was living in the inner city in Port Melbourne. Um, and funnily enough, I was actually recovering in hospital with a, from having a hip operation uh, and saw this property up near Castlevane. <laughs> One thing led to another and we moved up here. Yeah. And Castlevane was always on our agenda because of its proximity to all the things. Proximity to Melbourne, it's got an established gay and lesbian community. We both knew people living up here. So um, it was a relatively straightforward decision for us. Before we moved to Castle Moon, we were aware um, that a gay men's group existed up here. Um, and it was one of the factors we chose to move to Castle Moon. And since we've moved here, which was only about 12 months ago, it's been fantastically welcoming. The group does a walk around the Botanic Gardens every Tuesday and then a coffee afterwards, COVID permitting, and a, a shortish bush walk on Thursdays and then a range of other social functions during the year. And what I've found, we've found moving here, is that it's a very supportive group. So first it's a social group. If you want to talk to someone about where to get a modem fixed, which is the best hardware store, um, all those nuts and bolts of when you're moving to a new town, which is best to do this in Castlemaine or go to Bendigo, and we're just in the process of having a, a machinery shed built. So all of a sudden you've got access to people who have built machinery sheds in the last 10 years, and you can talk to them about their experiences. Fashion doesn't feature quite so highly in discussion these days. <laughs> that suits me, yes. podcast has been produced by Shireen Clough, editing and original music by Amy Chapman, interviews conducted by Shireen Clough and Amalia O'Hara. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline 13 11 14 Kids Helpline 1 800 55 1 800